America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day, another great week in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It is a great Hanukkah week and a week leading up to the great Christmas holiday, which is, of course, a national holiday not just a religious holiday. Uh, speaking of religion, what about all of the reports, and there have been tons of them, that this Christmas is different from other Christmases because so many people are deserting church. Part of that because Christmas Day falls on a Sunday, people are saying. But does it go deeper than that? We will talk about that on the Michael Medved Show. We will also, of course, talk about what just happened with the final, the climactic, the big explosive meeting of the uh, January 6th committee, the select committee, what President Trump likes to call the unselect committee in one of his witticisms. The, uh, the committee has uh, made criminal referrals on four counts. It had been previously announced that it would be three counts, but they've decided, let's go for four and uh, do those counts amount to anything? We will be talking with uh, John Yu, law professor from University of California at Berkeley, a supporter of President Trump. Does he believe that the president is in real trouble? What is the point of all this? It seems to me that the point of all this is to keep arguing. And why? Why do both sides want to do it? Why are Republicans talking about creating a select committee of their own to take a Republican point of view of January 6th? They have someone else to blame who isn't named Trump, has nothing to do with the Republican caucus in Congress, has nothing to do with the conservative side of things at all. Who does it have to do with? Not Antifa, not uh, people on that side of things. It has to do with law enforcement. And I think the idea of uh, Republicans attacking law enforcement, particularly at a time of surging crime, is exactly the opposite of what we ought to be doing. The um, Tomorrow, the House Ways and Means Committee will meet privately to discuss what to do with six years of Mr. Trump's tax returns that had finally obtained after nearly four years of legal efforts by Mr. Trump to block their release. What is in those tax returns? Anything that would be relevant to uh, President Trump and his future? Here's a fascinating story. I mean, and we will get to this. The president who was selling uh, at $99 each those limited edition uh, digital trading cards uh, the NFTs, sold out, sold everything. And here's the amazing thing. You know what? A lot of people thought he was doing this to raise money for his campaign. He's in the midst of a campaign for a third term. He needs to raise money like every other candidate. Uh-uh. His campaign isn't getting a penny from this money. Where is it going? Okay, you'll be shocked to hear but uh, there has been an announcement by uh, Mar-a-Lago and Trump World about where exactly it is going. Concerning the uh, meeting of the September, uh, pardon me, the January 6th panel, it voted today to refer President uh, Trump to the Department of Justice on at least four criminal charges, 
including insurrection and obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress and an attempt to defraud the government. Uh, why it matters, asks Axios. Uh, they say in an unprecedented move, the Congressional Committee voted unanimously that the former president committed crimes for his efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. The uh, panel referred Trump on charges of obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the U.S. That, I think, is the most tricky of the charges. The uh, conspiracy to make a false statement and incite, assist, or aid, or comfort an insurrection. Uh, so will those charges stick? The uh, committee has developed significant evidence that President Trump intended to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power under our Constitution. Well, isn't it obvious uh, that he did? What else did he have in mind if not interrupting the peaceful transfer of power when he demanded that people should come to Washington because it would be wild on January 6th. What does it mean to be wild? This is the uh, way that uh, MSNBC reported what just happened uh, this morning in Washington, D.C. with the final meeting, the climactic meeting of the Select Committee on January 6th, clip 9. They include conspiracy to defraud the government, obstructing an official proceeding of that joint session of Congress, and inciting or assisting an insurrection. That last one was a real topic of conversation for members and staff on the committee, whether or not they would be able to include it and if they thought they had sufficient evidence. It does appear now that they will say today they feel they have the evidence they need to move forward with that charge. Okay, and again, this is not a formal indictment. And to make that uh, uh, clear is extraordinarily important. It's a reference to the Justice Department. And uh, the question is what the Justice Department will do with it. Will they pick up all four charges and uh, investigate them? Uh, will they figure out a way to not exactly turn them aside, but to get them away from front and center? Or is this the uh, way in which they want to conduct the campaign? Now, a part of the thinking on all this becomes very complicated because the Democrats, you may remember, had a very successful strategy that I thought was low down, stinky, uh, unworthy of the United States of America, profoundly un-American. That was a strategy of deliberately supporting Trumpian candidates who they knew would lose. An example is uh, General Don Bullduck, who was just a colossal failure as a Senate candidate and a deep embarrassment. And the Democrats sent money to him. They used money to make sure he got the nomination. I believe, and uh, as a matter of fact, they indicate in the Wall Street Journal that the Biden campaign, which is putting together a campaign strategy for 2024, and the hint being that they will announce Biden's candidacy by April of 2024, if that goes forward, the Biden campaign clearly wants to run against Trump. They don't want to run against someone like DeSantis. They don't want to run against somebody like Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo or Mike Pence. Or They want to run against Trump. 
And are they wise to do that? Look at the disapproval rating. And this is the point. For these other candidates, there's a chance to put out a new portrait of somebody, not somebody people feel they already know everything about. There are very few Americans who don't have an opinion on Donald Trump. Very few. And by the way, the margin is decisive. The opinion is negative of most Americans. And people look about his dominance in the Republican Party. For Joe Biden, I suspect his only chance of actually winning the election at uh, age uh, 82 would be if he does run against Trump. So is it possible that this in entire exercise by the House committee will be turned aside by Biden's Justice Department to try to keep Trump as a viable candidate and a disruptive force in the Republican Party? When Trump does something crazy, does that help uh, Democrats? Of course it does. Of course it does. How could it not? If, uh, if, if Trump does something noble and wonderful, like step aside for a new candidate and maybe not even endorsing a new candidate, just wishing his party well and, and then campaigning on issues that matter, that could hurt Democrats. It's the most wonderful time of the Kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season. I don't know where exactly this song was written about the most wonderful time of the year. I will tell you with a little light dusting of snow. Uh, yes, uh, there are parts of the Seattle area that look very beautiful. But coming out the cold, can, can it really be the most wonderful time of the year when it's this cold, when you go out in the morning to pick up the newspaper and, and bring it into the house and you feel the uh, below uh, freezing temperatures? Yeah, it's a wonderful time of the year. I, I wonder if uh, President Trump believes that this is uh, the most wonderful time of the year for him. Uh, the um, Biden team seems to be highly encouraged. The Wall Street Journal has a piece by Ken Thomas and Catherine Lucy. Biden's team crafts re-election plans. And I think what they're trying to do is to stop any other likely Democrat uh, from even thinking of challenging Joe Biden, despite the fact that he is a weak president in terms of approval ratings and certainly in terms of the age issue, which is going to be a very real issue for him at the age of 82, which is what he would be uh, when he was uh, inaugurated for a second term. What the Journal reports is Mr. Biden's team has begun to hold preliminary discussions about the structure of the campaign and who could fill key roles, though there is no timetable for hiring as well as where headquarters would be located. Possibilities include Philadelphia, where the 2020 campaign was based before the COVID-19 pandemic, and the president's hometown of Wilmington, Delaware, 
of people close to discussion said, does anyone really believe that it matters what city your campaign is headquartered in? Really? I, I'm not sure at all that it does. The uh, journal also says Biden advisors who declined to discuss details of potential campaigns said it would be unwise not to have planning underway as Mr. Biden thinks about seeking another term. Mr. Biden has said he intends to run but hasn't made a final decision and will, will consult with family members during the holidays. Uh, Democrats' surprising strength in November's midterm elections, and yes, it was surprising, not overwhelming by any means, but surprising, in which they held off predicted Republican gains in Congress, has uh, helped Biden consolidate support within the party and silence chatter about potential primary challenges. Ron Klain, the White House Chief of Staff, said at the Wall Street Journal's uh, CEO Council Summit that he expected Mr. Biden to run again. And uh, I, yes, they do want to run against Trump. The uh, latest Wall Street Journal poll showed that 43% of registered voters had a favorable uh, view of Mr. Biden and 54% had an unfavorable view. His advisors think the midterm showed that the president's policies, including the recent energy, health care, and tax bills, and his support for abortion rights, as well as his speeches arguing that democracy is under threat, are popular with voters. And if if that is true, then they want to keep the argument going about who was responsible for January 6th. I, you can't dismiss January 6th. You can't say, oh, well, that was one riot. It was a big deal. And you have stories about uh, convicted rioters who now are threatening death for members of the FBI who helped to prosecute them. I mean, when when you are, are looking like Peru right now with this arguing about whether or not this was an outrageous, terrible thing that happened on January 6th. And, and by the way, the, the reports seem to be that the Republicans, of course, are going to disband this select committee as soon as they take over Congress, which is January 3rd. And they, the big job in January 3rd is getting Kevin McCarthy elected as speaker, getting somebody elected as speaker who is a Republican and can lead the party. But what uh, is striking is that they're talking about focusing on the Capitol Police and the failures of the Capitol Police. When actually it's very hard to look at January 6th and to see that the law enforcement that was there at the Capitol was anything less than heroic. And heroic not just because they battled, but because they didn't uh, take out weapons which they had and could have taken out and start shooting people. Uh, yeah, oh, yes, they killed uh, Ashley Bobbitt. Uh, and uh, it's a shame that she died. She was breaking through the glass when she was shot. And uh, the, the idea, however, that you're going to now try to make the Capitol Police into a scapegoat, which appears to be what Jim Banks of Indiana and Jim Jordan of Ohio, two of the leaders of the incoming uh, GOP Congress, which, by the way, it's now 
looking like there there will be a total of 222 Republican congressmen in the House of Representatives. How many do you need to actually have a majority? 218. So, So they have a margin of four votes. It's going to be interesting. Uh, Adam Schiff, who, of course, has been pushing charges against President Trump since the very beginning of his presidency, uh, had this to say about uh, the meaning of the January 6th Select Committee, which is going to be releasing a, a huge, I believe they say it's going to be 800 pages uh, on their formal report when that is released, which will be soon plus the vote today, and it was unanimous on the four charges against Trump. Here is uh, what Representative Schiff had to say. Listen. Uh, so I'm deeply concerned about it. You know, we, I think, in these hearings showed just how close we came to losing our democracy, but we're not out of the woods. And there's some simple, I think, fairly common sense steps we can take to protect the country. But, of course, the new majority is going to be far more interested in Hunter Biden's laptop or who knows what else. Well, that, that's uh, certainly true. And uh, Mike Pence, whose presidential campaign has a very, very difficult um, line to, to walk because you can't be too pro-Trump because otherwise why aren't you supporting Trump? And you can't be too anti-Trump, otherwise you look disloyal. This is what he said on Fox News. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, Robert Kaplan is one of the most respected and influential foreign policy thinkers in the world right now. And he has just uh, penned a piece for Bloomberg, which um, is shaking up the way a lot of people are thinking about Iran and its future. We tend to think of Iran as a deeply troubled a terrible shape nation, especially with these current protests going on. Uh, Mr. Kaplan, who is the author of a brand new book, The Tragic Mind of Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power, which looks at some of these foreign policy issues, uh, writes about what could be a shockingly bright future for Iran. Uh, uh, Mr. Kaplan, congratulations on the new book. And uh, which is posted our website at michaelmedved.com and on the piece about Iran's future. Now, when you're talking about Iran and a perhaps dominant future within the Middle East, you're not talking about the same regime, are you? No, I'm not, Michael. Listen, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I think we need to use our imagination for when the Shah was in power in the 1970s, all the experts knew that there were opposition figures, that the Shah was not popular in Iran in many circles, but nobody could actually imagine a post-Shah Iran, Iran of ayatollahs and mullahs. They knew it analytically, but they couldn't actually imagine it. And that's why everyone, including those experts who worried about the Shah, were so baffled and surprised by the revolution of 1978-1979. 
What I'm saying in this article is that we need to use our imagination. The, the, um, the Mullah's regime, which has lasted almost 44 years, um, is not the end, you know, it, it's not the final word in history. It will pass like so many revolutionary regimes have. And so we have to start thinking about a post-revolutionary Iran. And what I see, in a no, because of a number of factors, is that Iran may have a better chance at being a normal regime um, than many countries in the Arab world that experimented with democracy during the Arab Spring and failed. Um, Iran is not Arab, it's Persian, it's different. Um, and therefore, I think we need to use our imaginations because I really think we're at the beginning of the end of this regime. When you say the beginning of the end, are you talking about a matter of decades or of years? Uh, years, I think, not decades, uh, months, years. Um, the regime has never been weaker since it took power in, in February 1979. There have been demonstrations over the years, most famously the Green Movement of 2009, which disputed a fixed election where thousands of people demonstrated. Also the 2019 demonstrations because of shortages and other economic issues. But this is by far the biggest. Because it's a, the regime, remember, stands on three pillars, hatred of America, hatred of Israel, and women must wear the hijab. Remove one of the pillars, and the other two start to shake a bit. And I think that's where we are now, and especially since um, the hijab, wearing the hijab affects half the population. Um, it cuts across regional ethnic and economic and class boundaries. Is there a way that um, uh, what people have seen has been there were demonstrations in Beijing and throughout China about the uh, zero COVID policies of the government. The government's actually responded. Can the uh, mullahs and the uh, Islamic Republic forces uh, show the same kind of flexibility perhaps in moderating opposition to the hijab and then keep their death to America, death to Israel, other parts of the uh, tripod? The reason, the reason, uh, uh, the regime in China is far more secure than the regime in Iran. The regime in China, much as we don't like it, the communist regime historically, since the 1990s, has dramatically raised the standard of living of the average Chinese. It has instituted a pseudo-capitalist economy, you know, you know, making massive amounts of high-end consumer goods. None of that is the case with Iran. Uh, people are maybe frustrated with the regime in China, and, and, a, and a significant part of the population in China may, may be opposed to it. But Iran is in far worse shape in terms of regime stability. Um, as, as, a, as an Iranian expert, Iranian-American expert told me, he said, think of Iran 
as a country of South Koreans that happened to be ruled by a clique of North Koreans. Wow. And, and this is the point that you make, is that the potential for Iran to grow and to influence the entire region is tremendous, partially because it's not an artificial country uh, where, exactly, the, where the borders exactly. were drawn by Westerners. This is a, a, an actual civilization. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, when you think of the Arab Spring and the tragically failed attempts to get better regimes in places like Yemen, in Libya, in Syria, we're talking about artificial states whose borders were by and large drawn by European colonialists. Iran is, as you said, it's a civilization that lives on the Iranian plateau, which is one of the great geographical features of the greater Middle East. And um, so it's, it, it's a real place. It's a real state. Yes, there are large minorities of Turkomans, Azeri Turks, uh, Arabs, and, and Baluch in, uh, in Iran, but they are all united by the Persian language. Um, so the divisions are more subtle and, uh, and can be accommodated by autonomy in a number of regions, far-flung regions. Um, Iran is far more secure and real a place. And that's one of the reasons why I'm more optimistic about a stable regime that, dare we say the word, democratic, may eventually rule in Iran. Uh, that's Robert Kaplan. Can, uh, can you stay with us for um, a moment more? Because there's another, you were talking about people being unable to imagine a democratic Iran. And one of the things you point out that's fascinating in uh, your piece in Bloomberg is how effortless, how smooth, actually, the transference from the Shah, who was supposed to last forever, that regime, uh, to the mullahs was, and how you believe that the transference to a pro-American, pro-Western democracy could be equally smooth. Okay, what I want to get to is another... Uh, development in the world that, that over the weekend it was emphasized that a lot of people once considered inconceivable, which is Japan uh, rising again as a formidable world-class military power. Uh, this a country with a pacifist constitution uh, in the wreckage of World War II is it good news for America and the world that Japan is committing tremendous, unprecedented resources to building up their political force and potential? We'll continue that conversation with Robert Kaplan. His uh, new book is uh, just available and uh, very much worth attention for getting a view of the world. It's called The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate, and the Burden of Power. We will be right back. The Michael Medved Show. All across America. It's, it's dangerous for America. It's dangerous for the world. This is The Michael Medved Show. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. 
Yuletide carols being sung by choir and folks dressed up like as And in this uh, celebratory season, maybe something else to celebrate, a, a piece from uh, Robert Kaplan, who is the author of 21 books on world affairs and travel. Balkan Ghosts was a triumphant bestseller that really called attention to the way that history shapes our present and our future. He now writes that a democratic Iran is coming, and as he said, coming as a matter of months, and it will lead the Middle East. Uh, Let me ask you about some other surprising development. I mean, nobody since World War II has viewed Japan as a significant military power, an economic power, certainly. But with these changes, with the current Japanese government, uh, is this good news for the United States? Uh, Yes. Uh, Let me just correct. I said coming in months or years. And the transition could be easier than in the countries of the Arab Spring, but it will take longer than when the Shah fell. So it's a matter of relativity. In terms of Japan... I think it's good news because it's 75 year, more than 75 years, three quarters of a century since uh, world, the end of World War II. And Japan, by raising its defense budget, or hoping to, to 2% of its GDP, is not becoming a militaristic nation. It's just becoming a normal nation again, a normal nation uh, within, you know, within range, uh, within missile range range of China and North Korea. So this doesn't indicate Japanese militarism, but Japanese normality, which should be very welcome among American defense planners. Okay. In terms of the uh, uh, changes in Iran, to get back to that, uh, they right now are busy uh, being uh, aligned very directly with North Korea and Russia two of the least savory regimes in the world. Uh, Would this change in the Iranian government change that alignment? A new Iranian regime in months or years, not in decades, in months or years, will, will ultimately get around, I believe, to dramatically shifting its foreign policy, to becoming more of a normal nation. Um, it, you know, uh, you know, Iranian public opinion does not hate the United States at all. I can say that from having traveled through Iran under both the Shah and under the Ayatollahs. Uh, there's a real deep-rooted uh, pro-American sentiment among Iranians. And as far as Israel is concerned, they're ambivalent. Uh, you know, they're not hateful in the way that the regime is. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the regime's posture towards Russia and North Korea, this, you know, before a regime weakens and collapses, it becomes its most dangerous. And that is what we are seeing now. All of this, sending drones to Russia, uh, helping North Korea is alienating the regime from its own people. What uh, can the United States do? 
uh, to help the transition that you envision? Well, first of all, I think the, the Biden administration has correctly realized that the drive for a nuclear agreement with Iran is pretty much dead because the politics of it are, have become so bad. They don't want to be seen to be releasing billions of dollars worth of credits to a regime that is murdering its own people in the streets. So I think that is in the past tense, the nuclear agreement. Um, I think the, one of the things the Biden administration can do that the American intelligence and technical intelligence community can do, which I believe it is trying to do, is to keep the Internet going in Iran, to, to make sure not to take any positions, but just to allow average Iranians to communicate with each other through digital means. And that in and of itself will help fuel the uprising. There's a lot of speculation that the recent arrest, uh, and I don't even know if she's been released, of one of the most prominent and celebrated Iranian actresses has been uh, another stumble by the regime, as well as the idea of executing people and then leaving the bodies on display, which apparently is not persuading a lot of Iranians to support the mullahs. Yeah, it's all, all, all these actions... Um, uh, you know, are meant to frighten and drive fear into the hearts of future demonstrators, saying, don't, don't demonstrate because this can happen to you. And it will be a bit successful, but over time, um, you know, in terms of the coming months, it will not have an effect. It will only make the, uh, the population hate the regime even more. Because let's think for a minute why people are demonstrating and risking their lives and livelihoods. It's not just because one ethnic Kurdish woman was killed by the morality police. What that did was ignite a whole series of grievances. Um, the Iranian regime has essentially destroyed the economic lives of millions of people for the last two generations inside Iran. Iran today, had the Shah stayed in power, would have evolved into a constitutional monarchy and would today be somewhat like South Korea. Um, but that hasn't happened. People have no economic hope. Their lives are, are bleak. They're grim. They feel they have nothing to lose. You um, also speculate in your piece in Bloomberg, and again, this goes along with the, uh, the new book, The Tragic Mind. Uh, you speculate about the impact on Saudi Arabia which at the moment is uh, a determined uh, rival, enemy, uh, opponent of the Iranian regime. What would happen to the Saudis, and what would the impact be on them yeah, um, if this transition takes place? I was in Saudi place? Arabia um, earlier this year, um, and I spoke with the foreign minister. And one thing he explained to me is that the Saudis don't hate Iran or the Iranian people. They hate what the Iranian government is actually doing, fueling the war in Yemen, firing missiles at oil fields. It's specific actions by the Iranian government. The irony is that while Saudi Arabia is an autocracy, 
it would actually welcome democracy in Iran, because a democratic Iran or any kind of normal Iranian regime, mildly autocratic, would not take would not do all these destructive regional acts. Acts and therefore Saudi Arabia and Iran could have a détente of sorts. And uh, and that détente again, many people forget or don't never knew that the Shah was actually fairly closely aligned with Israel. And uh, what you're talking about is perhaps a very very different future for the entire Middle East, with more cooperation and less conflict? Yes, yes. Um, you know, the late British historian Arnold Toynbee wrote about the historic cooperation between Persians and Jews. Um, and the Shah epitomized that. Um, you, you know, just like uh, Iranian foreign policy under a more under a normal regime, and by normal, I don't mean it doesn't have to be democratic per se, but just a non-ideological regime would take would would initiate some dramatic shifts in its foreign policy. Uh, and the, the dramatic vision which is a, a wonderful Christmas gift, uh, or Hanukkah gift for that matter, for anyone to read it, is uh, posted at our website at michaelmedved.com, a contribution in uh, Bloomberg from the esteemed Robert D. Kaplan. Uh, blessings for the season on you and on your always insightful reportage and uh, opinion pieces. We have a very different sort of opinion coming up with a new PETA campaign against speciesism. What's that about? Thinking that human beings are different from animals. Crime? We'll get to that and much more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.